0: Hello and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. In this 11th part of a series, Dorje Lopan Dr. Hanlai teaches about the songs of Milarepa, the 11th century Tibetan saint who reached the ultimate state of awakening. The presentation of these profound songs is integrated with teachings on the Guru Yoga of Milarepa Sadhna in order to introduce a more contemplative and experience based approach to practicing this liturgy. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, tibetanspirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person or look us up online at uDharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening.
1: Uh, So Milarepa is famous uh, for these songs that he sings as instructions uh, to people that he meets uh, in his wanderings. Uh, In fact, uh, he even sang songs uh, like St. Francis to animals. Uh, There is one particular one uh, where uh, um, I don't have that. those songs in here, uh, which is basically the song, it's a series. It's a song to a deer, song to a dog, and song to a hunter. Um, because the situation was that uh, this hunter, aided with the dog, was chasing uh, a deer. And so the deer was running in fear and comes... You know comes across Milarepa, and then Milarepa started singing to the deer, and the deer sat down to listen. And then he sang the song to the deer. Then the dog arrives, you know, ready to charge and uh, to, you know, go for the jugular veins of the deer, and Milarepa calmed the dog and say, "You sit down and listen. I have something to tell you." Then the dog sat down. Then, after a while, the hunter comes, you know, kind of upset and first excited to see that the deer is there, then upset to see that the dog is not doing anything. And Milarepa said, You, you wait, you listen first, sit down. And so he sits down. And then all three of them were converted you know, to the way of Dharma. Uh, it's a beautiful story. And other times Milarepa sang to non humans. The uh, in the spirit world, uh, all sorts of spirit entities is said to have come to him. Sometimes out of malevolence, sometimes out of fear, uh, and attacked him. And then, um, but they were all uh, kind of turned into becoming disciples of Milarepa. Uh, so he sang to both humans and non-humans and animals. Uh, and so, uh, so much so that his songs there are so many. They collected and gave it this name called the Hundred Thousand Songs of uh, Milarepa. Uh, There aren't, as I explained before, there aren't literally a hundred thousand. It just means, you know, uh, the Collected Songs of Milarepa. And these Songs of Milarepa harken back to um, the time of the great Siddhas, the great practitioners, uh, tantric practitioners in India. Often these individuals were not, were no longer, maybe at one time they were part of polite society, uh, but they left polite society, so to say, uh, including leaving uh, the monastic seats of higher learning, such as L- Nalanda, Vikamashila, uh, places which is the Indian equivalent of Cambridge, Oxford, uh, a lot of prestige. Uh, but these great practitioners were often people who even left those situations, those conditions to become these itinerant uh, wandering yogis uh, teaching and instructing without much of um, care and institution, uh, gathering groups of disciples um, that have dedicated their lives to them in very much the same way as Jesus of Nazareth and his band of unruly, unseemly, uh, uh, less savory types um, These were people, individuals that live on the edges. Um, But important to note here that we should not glamorize living on the edges. These were people who fundamentally came from privileged backgrounds, who chose to live on the edges because it would bring a greater good. So, whether it was Jesus' disciples or Milarepa's disciples, they were often uh, people of privileged background who saw what was needed of them for the greater good, and they walked away from their very comfortable lives. Uh, they walked away from their ordinary day-to-day lives. They walked away from business as usual and went to the edges of polite society and uh, made an impact in the world. So when we read about Milarepa, we read about his stories, we read about his songs, uh, we should also remember uh, what he did and what his students did and what they gave up uh, for uh, a greater good. Uh, So We have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we giving up? Because something got to give. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have samsara and nirvana at the same time. Uh, You have to give. Something got to give. So what that might be, uh, it's up to you. Unless again, you have found your marpa, then marpa will let you know (laughs) what you need to give. But remember, Marpa did not go looking for Milarepa. Milarepa came looking for Marpa. The teacher cannot force anyone to be a student. The teacher, the guide cannot force anyone to be a disciple. The disciple is what makes a teacher a teacher. In the last song, you know, he keeps saying, you know, go learn, go rely on a qualified Lama if you really want to learn the Dharma. If you really want to learn the Dharma. Even in Milarepa's time, there were a lot of charlatans. Even in Milarepa's time, there were a lot of, maybe not charlatans, but not yet qualified teachers. How much more? the case in our times. Uh, so those of us who have the uh, title or have the responsibility of being teachers, uh, actually, mm, if we're doing this right, it's always, it always feels very awkward um, because, you know, you look at yourself and you say, I'm not exactly yet doing what the teachings say should be done so it's a little bit of uh, hypocrisy uh, but no choice you know (laughs) the karma and merit of sentient beings that's why we call these times degenerate age it's certainly not degenerate in terms of uh, material well-being right way more people have you know secure roofs over their heads. Way more people uh, have uh, inoculations uh, that keep them alive beyond childhood. Way more people are educated in so many other ways. Uh, it's progress compared to you know, 300 years ago. Uh, but why do the Buddhist texts call this the de- degenerate age? Uh, surely it's not talking about material progress. But it is talking about uh, the suffering that we experience despite and in spite of being surrounded by material progress. We have truly become uh, the realm of the hungry ghosts. Uh, because it is said that in the realm of the hungry ghosts, it's not that there is no food around. Uh, but when that food touches their mouth. It bursts out into flames. Or in some cases when the food go down, the th- succeeds in passing through the flaming mouth and going down the needle throats into the drum-like stomachs. That's how they describe hungry goes. Burning mouth so that when anything you touch the mouth is too painful, the insides are all burnt. So you can't swallow. But even if you can force some food into your mouth, so little because the throat is the size of a needle. And then the stomach is the size of a drum. Or sometimes it's the size of a barrel or even a mountain. It's constantly hungry. And then in some cases they say, mm, in the daytime you eat, then in the nighttime, whatever goes into the stomach turns into an inferno burning up. Uh, This must be monks suffering from heartburn terribly, you know, and they're feeling as if, you know, they're hungry ghosts. (laughs) But really, now, so many of us are living in the realm of hungry ghosts. We are surrounded uh, by material progress and material comforts, but we are suffering tremendously, tremendously. And we can't get out. And this is the worst kind of suffering. Because at one point we believe that because we lack material stuff, so on that day when I have all the material stuff that I want, then I'll be happy. But that's not the case. Then what? Right? Then hopelessness sets in. At least when you don't have that much material comfort, you can imagine a day when I get all of it, I'll be happy. But that day just never arrives. And even worse, when it arrives, you're like, this is not what I sign up for. Then depression and hopelessness comes in spiritual depression and hopelessness settles in. In fact, it's even the case that we're surrounded by a wealth of dharma, but we are like hungry ghosts. We're like hungry ghosts. Because we don't, we're not ready to let the dharma transform us. We still want to do it our way. So we don't. We don't want Marpa to turn up. (laughs) We really don't want Marpa to turn up. Because we think, you know, "I, I, I can probably figure it out myself. And how many times have we said that? And here we are still. So it is said that the Gagyu lineage, of course, all lineages of Tibetan Buddhism uh, emphasizes the primacy, because of Vajrayana, emphasizes the indispensable role of the Lama or the Guru, the guide. But in particular, it is said that the Gagyu, even more strongly than any of the other lineages, because Gampopa, even taught, even went to the extent of saying, if you have devotion to the Lama, that itself can can be the cause for realizing Mahamudra. Mahamudra is the Vajrayana language for enlightenment. Uh, but other traditions will say, no, oh, no, 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 no. You absolutely need Vajrayana techniques. Uh, Gampopa actually says, actually, if you have devotion in the Guru, that itself uh, is even better uh, than any of these techniques that you're trying to learn. Uh, in fact, Gampopa wasn't the first to say this. You know, Back in India, many of the Mahasiddhas, Saraha, Tilopa. Uh, they were actually people who themselves, and including Gampopa, themselves did all sorts of, you know, what you might call mystical practices and energy work, right? All the intricate, complex, complicated yogic techniques. But in the end, they say, actually there is an easier way, well, quote-unquote easier, which is devotion in an authentic Lama, then that itself is your gateway to awakening, that you can bypass all the complicated, you know, forceful methods, and just go direct into Mahamudra. So they say, the Kagyu lineage especially, kind of emphasizes that and then sometimes others kind of accuses the kagyu of being too loosey-goosey with vajrayana stuff but it's not that it's loosey-goosey <laughs> it's, it's that it's saying if you can go if you can enter this through the door of devotion then you don't need you don't need to go through the hardship of um of um, these yogic techniques and these yogic methods that devotion is what's more important hmm? so and devotion doesn't mean uh hero worship it doesn't even mean um you know always you know sticking around the guru Milarepa didn't spend that much time with Marpa at all, right? only three years maybe and even those three years most of the time it was just receiving instructions and go practice receiving instructions go practice receiving instructions go practice um, and recently again you know like um, I was blessed with a friend visiting and uh hearing, you know, uh, her talk about, uh, not just talking about you, you can see it's coming from the heart. I have seen this, of course, but it was good to be reminded. There's tremendous devotion to her Guru that was very inspiring. That no matter what, you know, the Guru says. And it doesn't mean that she didn't struggle. She struggled how to reconcile her will with the will of the Guru. But in the end, she said, you just have to jump. She's talking about being on the bus. Uh, there's this pilgrimage, uh, originally 12 days, under the hot sun of Ladakh. There's no tree in sight anywhere, okay? And walking under the hot sun for hours and hours and hours every day in the summer. And for reasons that, um, you know, she did not share, uh, by day two, the Guru stopped talking to all foreigners. Uh, Majority was Ladakhí. But there were a few hundred foreigners that went along. The Guru just stopped by the second day. And apparently something happened uh, where uh, I think it's, it's the foreigners kind of feeling like, we, we came so far away. <laughs> so demanding certain things. And the Guru just completely ignored them to the point of when are we breaking camp to start the next day no word told all the Ladakis, you are not to share with them anything so people starting dropping off the foreigners started disappearing along the way couldn't take it anymore, and so at, until the end, only you know maybe a hundred left. And then suddenly on day ten, the guru said, "That's it, pilgrimage over." People are like, "There's two more days." I said, like, "No, done. Well, I have arranged for the bus to wait for us when we arrive there. All of you can go now." Was the last next time. You know, something was communicated clearly. <laughs> it's, it's the end. <laughs> yeah, but one caveat if you want to continue, you can. But no meals will be provided, no one's carrying your tent, no arrangements whatsoever. So all the foreigners got on the bus. And my friend also got on the bus. But her close friend that came together with her was one of like six people that wasn't on the bus. And so the bus was moving, started to move to back out. And then she saw the guru walk by the group of six and turn and smile at them. And immediately she had a backpack and then she thought, but my sleeping bag is packed on top of the bus. She said, like, what do I do? What do I do? And she goes, no, I have, to go. I, have to, I have to leave the bus. And just as the bus was about to speed up she jumped jump off the bus. And she joined the seven people <laughs> that continued. And she said, of course, no idea what's going to happen next, you know. No sleeping bag. At night, the temperature drops really cold. Of course, everything worked out. She was alive to tell the story. And she said, that was really the real test, you know. And everything is well, and you talk about devotion, that's cheap and that's easy. But under those very difficult circumstances. uh, So, you know, these individuals have met their marpa. (laughs) You know, they're kind of their great blessings. They have met their marpa, and they only see their marpa maybe once every few years. But it's that kind of devotion that far away in the middle of nowhere, for all intents and purposes, in Dharma terms, eh, barely any Dharma teachers come around those areas. They persevere, they continue. I'm talking about friends in Peru. I can count with two hands how many members there are. They built a stupa. And the person who went to help them build the stupa said, I have built stupas all around the world. He's like the stupa expert in our lineage. German guy, by the way. In the monastery in Tibet, he's in, in Nepal, he's famous for being a tyrant. <laughs> um, he would slap the monks and beat them over their heads when they are working for him and not this German guy, really. Uh, but the friend said, This earthquake in Nepal, every building was damaged except for the ones that he built. There's only one small crack in the monastery that he was responsible for. So all the monks were so, you know, like, oh, wow. Anyway, this this stupa builder said, I have built many stupas in Nepal, in Ladakh in even Middle East this is record time what you guys did in less than two months they got the whole stupa done and they have teachers coming to them once or twice a year And they accomplished that. And they accomplished that. And now I see how. You know, because it's it's devotion. And she says, devotion is not emotions. It's nothing to do with emotions. It has to do with toughness. No matter what, you don't give up. And she said, you know, literally, I thought I was gonna die building this stupa but it's my guru's wish that this stupa be built and even I she said I have doubt at one point that should this stupa be built here she said because I'm a cultural anthropologist and she said one day I just look at this and go oh my gosh what have I done to this landscape this doesn't belong here uh, culturally, it's so jarring, right? How many Buddhists are there in, in the whole of Peru? And then we have like altered, he said, she said, the landscape. She said, I even have those doubts. It's not easy. Yeah, but he's, she said, but no, you just have to keep. Now, you might call this fanaticism, but well, you could take it in a fanatical way and create a lot of havoc in the world. But in this case, I see that this is what keeps the Dharma always in your hearts. So ultimately it's not about the Guru. The Guru is just the catalyst for the Dharma to be born in our hearts. To, to really have dharma born in our hearts. Then that we have no more fears you know we have no more fears so milarepa's story too is so much about his devotion you could say it's his devotion to marpa but you could also say, say it's his devotion to his own potential which is of course inseparable from the kindness of marpa this is how we talk about interdependence yeah. Confidence and devotion to his ability that he's not gonna give up, which is completely tied with Marbara's kindness to him. All those coming together. So he became, you know, like the most known of all figures in Tibetan Buddhism, Milarepa. So here are seven inner and outer arisings. Our father and mother, as causes and conditions, arise outside. So each of these, he will talk about what is the outside causes and conditions, and what's arising inside, and as a result, what happens. Basically, that's what each part, each verse is is how it's constructed. Our outer father and mother, as causes and conditions, arise outside. Our all basis consciousness arises within. As the two connect, a complete human birth is attained. I was not born in the lower realms of merely this I'm sure. It also has a sense of I'm thankful. Uh, I'm sure. I'm thankful. Uh, I'm grateful uh, that uh, that this has happened. And how can this happen? He says, "Well, you need uh, the proper causes and conditions. So, causes and conditions that are independent of you. That's what it means outside. Uh, so, so his parents uh, met, right? And what are all the causes and conditions that led to his parents meeting?" All of that, right? And then the all-basis consciousness. Okay, so this is a technical term, which is alaya consciousness. In the um, lamp offering text that we did earlier, there's alaya consciousness. So alaya consciousness is is complicated, how to explain this philosophically, but it's the closest, I guess, you could say to the notion of a soul. But no, it's not. Um, Another time, you know, we can explain this. His point here is that his mind, uh, so we say that it's the mind, right, that goes from lifetime to lifetime. But of course, mind is not a thing, right? Mind is more like a series, a process, uh, of a process of consciousness, each consciousness lasting only a moment, followed by the next consciousness, by the next, by the next, by the next. So here, it's the mental continuum, that process. So that mind meets with the father and the mother. More explicitly, here, the way Buddhists understand conception is saying that when when our future father and mother uh, engage in sexual intercourse, uh, given that it's a time where uh, the mother uh, is fertile and the father's sperm is functional, the, when the two meets together, this mind, uh, our what he calls the all-basis consciousness, latches on to that and says, I. So so the beginning of I-ness uh, associated with this body started at conception. Uh, so he says, it is during that, uh, when these outer conditions and the inner conditions connect, then a complete human birth is attained. So he says, and as a result of that, you know, I wasn't born in the lower realms. Because in the lower realms, beings are born differently. Uh, and so of this, I can be sure. So he's, in a way, um, rejoicing. The fact that uh, a human birth uh, has been obtained. Right? Uh, appearances of birth and death arise outside. Revulsion for samsara and faith arise within. So, the appearances of birth and death arose. Externally. So of course, for all of us, that's also true, right? I mean, we, we see birth and death happening all the time. But do we have the inner cause, the inner arising? So what needs to arise when we observe birth and death? Revulsion towards samsara, right? Right? which is what I was talking about earlier, like you need to see huh, that samsara stinks huh? or oh, my favorite samsara sucks, you <laughs> can have a bumper sticker again, samsara sucks. <laughs> so, so we need to actually see and recognize huh, that, that, that this is confused projections. And as long as confused projections are going to continue, there isn't going to be real happiness. So revulsion towards samsara and faith. This is the faith, the confidence, the devotion that I was just talking about. So on the one side, revulsion towards samsara, faith and confidence that I can be free from samsara. those two have to be there and then when the sufferings of samsara expressed here as birth and death manifest as the two connect sublime and genuine dharma comes to mind then our mind will turn towards uh, the dharma which is that which wakes us us up. Sublime and genuine Dharma comes to mind. And then, when that happens, I am not ruled by the enemy of near kin, of merely this I am sure. (laughs) Kin, family. He says, I'm not ruled by the enemy of close family. This in part is of course cultural. Uh, Culturally, family here relative to Tibetan families and during Milarepa's time do not have such a strong hold on us. And so how are we to interpret this line? So this line need not be literally uh, interpreted as uh, you got to get rid of your close family members. Uh, so what do you need to get rid of here? Uh, what do you need not to be ruled by? Your attachments. Your
0: attachments
1: to. That, that bond. That bond. That bond mm. again, you know, this is not easy to swallow. <laughs>
2: I I, I, have, I have almost had no bond with my
1: brother. So. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, many of us have many reasons. Right, Whether we have bonds with this family member or not. Important that it's for the right reasons. So this is not just a bond with family. In his context, family bonds have the greatest control over Milarepa. Because that's how his life. The mother was tortured by a resentment towards the uncle and the aunt. And kept feeding right anger to Milarepa as he was growing up and say, you need to avenge this, you need to avenge this, you need to avenge this. And so he did. So in that sense, the mother was the enemy. And not, not, not that Milarepa is saying, I should hate her. No, Milarepa loved his mother. But what should have been a loving relationship turned into the mother teaching him to commit murder. So what it's saying is whatever bonds that we have with whoever that causes us to create suffering, we need uh, to not be ruled by those types of bonds. So whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's my duty, we need to be freer. From those types of influences. Again, I'm reminded of certain kind of seemingly incomprehensible or paradoxical things found um, in the New Testament. Right? You know, alongside, you know, honor your father and mother, which is in the Hebrew Bible, which Jesus as a good Jew taught that, as a rabbi, as a rabbi, taught that. But he also taught. You know. He said, I do not come to bring peace, but I have come. Yeah. The set, right? The child against the parent, the brother against the sister. What was he talking about there? Right? I mean, does he literally mean that <laughs> go up and tear up families? I don't know theologically how that is interpreted, but if we interpret it through sort of The Buddhist interpretation is saying his role is to stir up business as usual because business as usual is what's keeping us trapped in confusion. So there is a a very kind of um, antinomian, uh, a very kind of non-mainstream stance in these teachings that at the end of the day it cannot just be about you know uh, having your beautiful home in the suburb with two and a half kids 2.4 whatever that number is yeah and your two vehicles and a good retirement plan and all of that and actually yeah you know (laughs) at the end of the day Yeah, you want that? Well, that can continue. You don't need to do so much of this dharma stuff. But if you say, you know, bodhicitta is what I aspire to, then there will be disruptions. (laughs) Again, across all spiritual traditions, they say the same thing. Causes and conditions for meeting the Father Lama arise outside. The prajna that purifies arises within. Prajna here is wisdom. So see, this is really interesting. As the two connect, understanding through trust is born. I've ended all doubts about Dharma, of merely this, I am sure. This song is Milarepa's declaration of his own experience. But it also serves as a model for those who want to follow him. Not everyone needs to follow him. Not everyone is ready to follow him. Right now, if you ask me, eh, also not ready to follow him. But we can certainly be inspired at least a little bit that would be very beneficial. So, here, it gives us a little bit more to work with, some insight as to what it means to have a lama, to have a guru, and to rely on a guru. So he says, let's work on this backwards. I think we can see some things if we go to the very last sentence. The very last line says, I've ended all doubts about dharma. Right? So what is the purpose of relying on a Lama. This is the purpose. So that I can end all doubts about Dharma. Just as I've said before, just 20 minutes ago, devotion to the Lama is said to be that key. But, but, But that's not the final reason the final reason is to arrive at ending all doubts about the Dharma. Ending all doubts about the way to free ourselves from confusion. The way to put an end to suffering. So that. And for that to happen, what do we need? These two have to connect. Or, no, uh, what do we need? Understanding through trust. Understanding that arises via trusting the Lama's instructions. But how this understanding through trust is produced when two things meet, when two things connect. What are these two, two things that have to connect? Ah, go back. Wisdom that purifies has to arise within us. And the correct causes and conditions for meeting the Lama has to be there. Meeting the Lama doesn't mean, you know, like uh, just meeting Because you could spend your whole life eh, with this person who is supposed to be a Lama, but he or she, eh, you don't consider your Guru. Then you're just hanging out with whoever. (laughs) Right? Uh, so, So some of these causes and conditions is basically the ability to recognize, Oh, this person is suited to be my Guru. And that's not easy, because Milarepa, before Marpa, had another Guru. And it said that that Guru also had all the you know, teachings. And his, his specialty was in Dzogchen, the great perfection, uh, the Nyingma tradition. But no success for Milarepa. So finally that Guru said to him, we don't have the correct karmic connections. You need to find somebody else. So I think teachers who kind of get disappointed, you know, when students go away, uh, basically they don't understand. (laughs) Right? And students who get disappointed because seemingly the teacher doesn't want to teach, basically they don't understand. The student's job is to keep requesting for Dharma. That's the student's job. But it's not the teacher's job to say yes, yes, yes. It's the teacher's job to say yes when it is appropriate and no when it is not appropriate. Doesn't mean the student then say, oh, I'm not going to ask anymore because he has said no to me seven times. No. The student's job is to keep asking, keep requesting. Uh, then the, and, and it's not like wearing it down. You know, like I'll wear him down until he gives it. <laughs> uh, but rather with devotion and trust. Yeah? And to say, please give me the appropriate teachings. Don't say, give me this, this, this and that. I, I don't want this, this, this and over that. But I want this, this, this and that. Then then you're not relating to that person as guru. You're relating maybe to that person uh, as your employee. And of course, in our culture, uh, we didn't used to relate to our college professors that way. But now it's all a business. Yeah, It's all about business. Yeah, and no learning takes place. Really. You know? Because... I mean, to put it very bluntly, uh, it's blunt, okay? It's like you're having the asylum, the patients at the asylum telling the doctor what to prescribe. (laughs) You know? Then you say, no, I'm not a mental asylum patient. Well, then leave. No one's forcing you (laughs) to receive the Dharma. Either you're convinced (laughs) that you're a mental asylum patient or not. Either you're convinced that I need the guide of a guru or not. If you're convinced, then then be ready for what the guru's plan of recovery is. And it cannot be, oh, I want this, this now, here, eh, eh, this, this, that. Now, of course, When Marpa probably was relating to someone else who he did not consider to be his student, probably he would say, Oh, you want this? Okay, I'll give it to you. Oh, you want this? Oh, I'll give it to you. (laughs) Because actually Marpa, it seems, also charged money for these teachings. So he wasn't shy to to take money because there was a lot of desire during that time. Uh, Tibetans really wanted because this is good stuff coming from India. In the same way, in this materialistic West, people have this attitude to Dharma. This is good stuff. I want it. So we see Marpa sort of giving, you know. Okay, you want it? Okay, here. 500 pieces of gold. And there were people who gave it to him. And he said, okay, now I'll give you whatever you want. But we never heard from these people ever again. Right? Right? because they achieved nothing they achieved nothing so with milarepa even marpa's wife could not understand she said why are you so cruel to him with other people you just give marpa said but out you have no understanding of this situation then she tried to derail marpa's you know recovery plan Yeah, but one time it is said that she woke up in the middle of the night and saw Marpa sobbing away. And then she realized that Marpa is in so much pain giving Milarepa a hard time. Then she stopped. (laughs) She stopped trying to help Milarepa, knowing that Marpa really cared for Milarepa. And until Mar- Milarepa really related to Marpa as guru, whatever Marpa gave would be useless to Milarepa. Useless. So he
2: didn't want to do all of it. He had to do it.
1: He had to do He knew that.
2: In order for him to get it.
1: Yeah. So last week I said, you know, I'm pretty confident compared to Milarepa, all of us in this room have way more information about the Dharma that Milarepa ever got. But because of Milarepa's devotion to Marpa, he didn't need all that information. Whatever little Marpa gave Milarepa, it actually produced results. Us, we're still running around and relating to the teachings like it's it's, Capitalism. Yeah. I give this much to get this much,
3: yeah?
1: and if I, if you, if, if, if I don't get it, sorry, I need to go somewhere else now. I'm gonna shop elsewhere.
2: That's what I like about this
1: country.
2: no matter no hmm? matter what your income
1: is, you give what you can, and if you keep coming, you still get dharma. So devotion yeah. hmm? is. Is what and but how does these two meet together to produce the result of understanding through trust is born? Not just that the Lama is there and available, and this is indeed the Lama that we have, yeah. Lifetimes a connection with, not only that, but your own wisdom that is purifying from within. So it does not completely rule out your ability to discern to some degree whether this is the guru or not for you. But wisdom doesn't come from judging mind. Wisdom comes from somewhere else. It's the wisdom that purifies our perception of what's going on. So again, it's calling us to not believe our feelings and our thoughts, our immediate feelings and thoughts that come up, especially when relating to Guru or or potential Guru, to sort of be you know, sort of watch, watch our own reaction and see, wh- wh- where is that reaction coming from? Yeah? Uh, it's a light being shined into one area that we don't want to see, we're embarrassed to see, we're resistant to see, and therefore we are reacting this way or not. See, it's that way that wisdom arises. Then when you actually, so this is not calling for blind faith in someone. Uh, That the person just say, you know, do anything ridiculous and you do. It's not that. Uh, That your relationship with this person, with this guru, or potential guru, has to be in such a way that you, you, you pay attention and if this is indeed the guru that you're looking for, that is right for you, at least for now, trust will be born in you and you recognize, oh, this is what's happening, then understanding through trust is born. When that happens, all doubts about Dharma, we can put the rest to. Then we put into practice. We put into practice. We don't waste our time arguing, which actually, to tell the truth, that happens a lot. I know people don't think that it's arguing, yeah. But it is. It's a it's a subtle form of arguing. Like a teacher will make a statement about something, right? And and you know deep down what it means, but then you also know that those words can also be interpreted this other way. Then you say, eh, doesn't that mean da 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 da? You are wasting everybody's time. Right? I mean, it's just talking for the sake of talking. But that's not how we learn Dharma. That might be how you debate in class. But it's just a waste of time. You you already know what the obvious take home that that statement is about. But no, we want to, you know, like. Uh, but doesn't this standing mean da 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 da? So there's some teacher who says, you know, uh, actually Thich Nhat I was told many many years ago before he became so famous now. Uh, I have friends who attended one of his teachings in California. He comes into the room and he says, "Okay. Ask me a question." You know, people were expecting dharma talk. He said, "Ask me a question." Everyone's was like, "Uh and he said, "But this question cannot be a prepackaged Buddhist question. What, what is suffering? You know, he says, none of that bullshit. What? Ask me a real question about Dharma as it relates to your life. Don't give me all this, you know, like, can you explain emptiness? And it's like, no. I want a Dharma question that really means something to you. And then he took his Watch and he said one minute. If no question, I'm leaving. Then his stopwatch starts tick 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 and he says thirty seconds fifteen seconds and then somebody raises a hand and asks and he's like good. Then he answers the question and gives the answer and then after that he says Ask me another question, now forty five seconds. And the friends that were there, they said it was electrifying because no more bullshit questions. Hypothetical questions. Questions that have nothing to do with really taking Dharma to heart. Which is what often happens. A little bit of that is fine. But if you're continuously just doing that, then we're wasting everybody's time. But of course... With teachers like him, you know, they are real teachers. They have thrown aside the eight worldly concerns. They say, what, I become unpopular? So be it. People stop liking me? So be it. Who cares? That's hard. I know, you know, one of the first things... When I graduated and was going to be a, a teacher teaching at college, you know, my advisor and some other senior colleagues, you know, would say to me, the first thing, especially for a young professor, you know, it's like the first thing you need to understand is you're not here hmm? to become friends with them. You can become friends in the process of you doing your job. But if you try to become friends, you will fail in doing your job. And this is not your job to be friends. <laughs> Same, you know, here. You have to throw away the eight worldly concerns.
2: <laughs> Same with your parents. Same with parents. It's not their job to be friends with their Correct. Parents. My dad always wanted me but my dad
1: friends mm-hmm. and that, you know, creates you know yeah. confusion <laughs> yeah. boundaries, uh, you know, become really confused and nobody knows how to act and it's just a complete, a total waste of time on everyone's parts, you know when boundaries are unclear yeah
2: for, uh, fortunately for me i know enough to to uh, uh,
1: I that it anyway. Mm-hmm. I'll, <laughs> uh, next verse, uh, we won't be able to finish this whole song, but let's look at at least the next part. Beings of the six realms arise outside; unbiased compassion arises within. As the two connect, meditative experience comes to mind. I've kept compassion from ambition's domain of merely this. I am sure. It's interesting, right? I've kept compassion from ambition's domain. What do you think that is talking about? How? Why does he have to worry about this? Or why does he even have to say that he's now free of that? It
0: seems to me it's like this sense of um, not needing to fix anybody like an ambition to an ambition yes
1: yeah? yeah to fix anybody sometimes we think compassion means right everybody becomes my personal project and when they f- succeed yes <laughs> when they fail ooh, that's not compassion right ambition's project domain It also is telling us that Dharma practice should not be for success, ambition.
0: There was an article in War uh-huh. recently about that, like a Buddhist teacher who was really angry that Buddhists weren't responding the way he would have liked to the um, mm. the newly elected president. Yes. So anyway I'll leave it at that you can read it if you want mm-hmm.
2: it's
1: interesting maybe you should yeah if that was you <laughs> yeah um,
2: lion's, lions Raw. Lions uh, yeah.
1: I've kept compassion from ambition's domain yeah because even compassion can turn into uh, this this win and lose thing that we are always caught up in yeah, winning and losing and winning and losing you know And so we need to protect it from there. And to do that, we need to have meditative experience arise in our mind. But what sort of meditation? There are many, many types of meditation. And they can be very helpful. But the core meditation that we need to do, Milarepa says, is unbiased compassion. Uh, Arising from within us, towards who? Towards beings of the six realms on the outside. All beings of the six realms. So don't chase after meditative experiences. uh, That is this type or that type. Uh, seeing deities, feeling blissful, all those things, but train in uh, unbiased compassion for all. Very hard right now. <laughs> Very hard, right? Very hard. But necessary. Merely this I am sure So next Sunday we will continue uh, with this song the last three verses and then maybe do the six words that sum it all up uh, if you have this text, you know just read over them, even read ahead, then you' get a sense to anticipate what's coming. Um, another thing <clears throat> that we want to kind of work on is um, again, you know, try to remember. We have taken refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. We have generated bodhicitta. It has to mean something. Something has to be different. So let's lose the dedication from the Milarepa text, since we're still framing our teaching and learning within the context of this um, practice text.
3: But,
1: uh, let me look for it. Uh, e- even just quickly from page 40, uh, we will ju- I will just read. Um, this is called Receiving Four Empowerments. Remember, Milarepa is in the space, uh, at least kind of structurally, thinking of Milarepa in the space in front of us. But we also know actually it's in our minds. But then from Milarepa, we, we receive the four empowerments right? in the crown center, throat center, heart center, navel center, right? receiving empowerment from Milarepa. So I will read this, and you can just think about it as I'm reading, right? and receive the four empowerments that way. May our minds be ripened and liberated by the cotton-clad Venerable One and the assembly of deities of the Three Roots. As we thus supplicate, the retinue around Milarepa dissolves into Milarepa, and from him white, red, blue, and yellow rays of light emanate, which then dissolve into our four places. And we thus receive the four empowerments. These four empowerments purifies the four obscurations, obscurations of body, speech, and mind, and the most subtle obscurations. And in doing so, we will attain the four kāyas, the four bodies of Buddhists. Thereafter, the Venerable Milarepa melts into light and dissolves completely into you, In this very state of great indivisible equality, all that appears and exists is Mahamudra. Emaho, how wonderful. So together, let's do dedication on 41 and 42. Just continuing on. As the conquerors and their heirs dedicated the virtues accumulated in the three times and the innately present virtue, I too follow in their steps and dedicate these virtues as means for attaining the great non-abiding awakening. In the clear sky of Dharmadhatu, may the bondage of all migratory beings The snake's knot of ego fixation unravel itself and attain the non-mentation innate co-emergence, the level of Dharmakaya Vajradhara. May Lord Mila, the embodiment of the compassion of all conquerors, be my guru throughout all of my lifetimes. May I pacify the obstacles in the supreme and ordinary paths, and from within the state of luminosity, may I liberate my beings. that's it for today. Thank you for coming. I am quite aware that there are many other possible things that we could be doing. Uh, but due to our past karma,
0: here we are. Hello and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC Podcast. In this eleventh part of a series, Dorje Lopan Dr. Hanlai teaches about the songs of Milarepa, the 11th century Tibetan saint who reached the ultimate state of awakening. The presentation of these profound songs is integrated with teachings on the Guru Yoga of Milarepa Sadhna in order to introduce a more contemplative and experience based approach to practicing this liturgy. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity by our online store, tibetanspirit.com To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person or look us up online at uDharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening.